Morning, Bethel. All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, our scripture reading is found there. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. So the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, you can find it on page 973, if you're using the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, um, the black hardback book there, and you can find our, our text on page 973. And if you wouldn't mind, please do stand with me in honor of God's Word. So Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified." But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we are taking a break from the book of Isaiah for a little while. In fact, it may be a, a break all the way through the summer. Um, we may not pick up with Isaiah 49 until uh, September or late August, something like that. Um, we'll see. But at, at least for the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through a shorter series entitled Gospel Culture. So about two weeks ago, um, I took some time, um, about two days, to get away and fast and pray and think about upcoming preaching as well as some other you know, leadership issues and um, really two things kind of rose to the, the top of the heap as far as um, some themes that uh, seemed really important for us at this time. And so then uh, we met as an elder team a uh, week and a half ago, and I shared some of those thoughts with, with um, your shepherds, my fellow elders, and um, it seemed good to the group to actually do both of these things rather than just one. I was kind of saying, which, which one do you think would be best at this time? Because um, we as shepherds want to 
to do that kind of thing together, and I value their input and want to um, listen to that as they help um, care for the flock. Um, so anyway, it was a good conversation, and they really encouraged me to do them both. So I think that's probably what we're going to do is gospel culture first, and then a series on how we are pilgrims, Christian pilgrims. Um, it, normal New Testament Christianity is eagerly awaiting our Savior's return and looking to the city with foundations and very much an eternal mindset that is very not normal <laughs> with us. Um, so that's probably where we're headed afterwards. But for this morning and for the next few weeks, we're going to focus on gospel culture. So what do I mean by gospel culture? Well, um, it's not my phrase, and I'm going to just unapologetically quote way more than usual this morning, okay? And you guessed it. It's Ray Ortland. Yeah, um, I do like this guy. So this book, I'm going to come back to it at the, at the end, and I'm going to quote from it several times. It's called The Gospel, but the subtitle is How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And so maybe you can see where this is headed is the gospel truth creates a gospel culture. At least it's supposed to, right? So here's how he summarizes it um, in a brief space. He says, The gospel, and justification in particular, calls for more than doctrinal subscription. It also calls for cultural incarnation. We would be unfaithful to settle for doctrinal correctness without also establishing a culture of grace in our churches. So doctrine and disposition, if you were to talk personally, they go together. Creed and conduct go together. The doctrine of the gospel is intended to create a beautiful, loving culture of grace. And I don't know about you, but even some of this has, has happened recently. Um, have you just seen so much wreckage and carnage and ugliness in so many churches I've seen some up close. I've seen some at a distance. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody talk about what's wrong with this church and what's wrong with that church and the other church? And, and sometimes it's just because, you know, people are cranky and it's really cheap to be the armchair critic. But sometimes it's because, you know what? There's too many churches that are ugly in their character and they drag the name of Jesus through the mud. So how about this? Bethel, and we're not wholly guilty here. I'm not saying, you know, we're just totally in the ditch and dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. Um, but how about we just stop giving the world, at least North Wilmington, Newcastle County, an excuse to ignore Jesus? Oftentimes the church does that. So for the glory of Christ, the good of our community, we need to be on guard. Bethel is far from perfect, obviously, but... Her health and her beauty is always our responsibility. And if it's always something we're concerned about, then that is going to say good things for Jesus in our community. So let's, let's own this. That's where we're going to head with this whole thing. <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer, um, some of you are probably familiar with him. I won't explain who he is. You can look it up later. 
Um, but he said this, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. And then one more from Ortland here for now. Um, we accept that the truth of biblical doctrine is essential to authentic Christianity, but do we accept that the beauty of human relationships is equally essential? Every one of us is wired to lean one way or the other, he writes, toward emphasizing doctrine or culture. Some of us naturally resonate with truth and standards and definitions. Others of us resonate with feel and vibe and relationships. Whole churches, too, can emphasize one or the other. So the series here is called Gospel Culture, but the whole point is we need to embrace both wholeheartedly. The Bible have none of this false dichotomy. God constantly is shepherding us to wholehearted embrace of gospel doctrine and wholehearted embodiment of gospel culture. And we'll see just that played out in Galatians 2, the text that I read just a few minutes ago. So first the creed, the doctrine, and then we'll move on to the culture. So Galatians 2, if you're not still there, turn back to Galatians 2, 973 in the Pew Bible. And we'll look first at the creed, the doctrine, we believe, point number one, we believe the gospel here, justification by faith alone. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, we know that a person is not justified, made right with God, at peace with God, in the courtroom before the judge of all the earth, even though we are guilty as charged, how in the world can we be pardoned? The gavel falls, and rather than condemnation, it's acceptance. Not by our merits, not by what we've done. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And in case you didn't get it, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He says the same thing three times. This is pretty important. <laughs> so that's justification by faith in a nutshell. It's the heart of the gospel. Like the motto of the Reformation, the refrain of the Reformation, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? Here's from our statement of faith here at Bethel. We believe that justification is a free act. It's a gift of righteous grace, wherein God pardons and accepts repentant sinners by their faith in Christ apart from works. Faith is the sole instrument by which they as sinners are united to Christ. So Jesus died on the cross. How do we, how do we benefit from that? How do we get connected to that? By faith. So it's like a channel through which the grace of the cross comes to us, right? 
Faith is the sole instrument by which they as sinners are united to Christ, whose perfect righteousness and substitutionary sacrifice for sins, he died in our place for our sins, is alone the ground of their acceptance with God. This acceptance happens fully and permanently at the moment of justification. So we sang of it, dressed in his righteousness alone, cornerstone. My Savior's love is greater still. My righteousness is not my own. In Christ I stand before the throne. Even though we're prone to wander, that's, our, that's the rock underneath our feet. So we cannot be right with God by our own merits. We can only be right with God on the basis of Jesus' merits. That doctrine is not for the head only. It should thrill us, thrill our hearts, shape our life. So here's what it sounds. This is what it kind of sounds like when it becomes real in a person's mind and heart. John Bunyan, I've been quoting him some lately, so why not one more time? So grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Here's how he talked about his conversion. One day as I was passing, he's the one that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, okay? One day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, okay, so he's feeling guilty, fearing lest all was still not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought as well that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John Bunyan lacks my righteousness. You can put your name in there if you're a believer. For that righteousness is right before me. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Yes! Is your like, frame like a roller coaster? Anybody? Anybody? Aren't you glad that this is true, that Jesus is our righteousness? And he says, now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Here I lived for some time, sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, Christ. There was nothing but Christ before my eyes. So the, the, the gospel is truth that is intended to change and shape our lives individually and our life corporately. But it is all too easy to undo in conduct, or at least unsay, like be false to what we say, to undo in conduct what we confess in creed. Okay, so second point here. It's exactly what happened with Peter in this particular instance that Paul recounts, okay? Which was really helpful to the Galatians because they were in danger of doing some really foolish things, believing some foolish things. So this case in point with Peter was, was particularly appropriate for them in the context of the book, okay? So look at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Aramaic equivalent to the Greek Peter, okay? So talking about Peter, Apostle Peter here. But when Cephas came to Antioch, it's a Gentile city north of Jerusalem, a ways, I opposed him to his face. Whoa. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, okay, from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The Jews that said, you've got to be circumcised in order to be right with God. It's Jesus plus circumcision. That's what they said. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's what was happening. When Peter did this, he was like turning the clock back, like before the cross, and basically saying that anyone who really wanted to be right with God needed to keep the clean laws of the Jews. So if that was true, what did Jesus have to come and die for? All you got to do is just make sure you clean up your diet and hit the clean laws, right? So later in Galatians, Paul writes, In Christ you are all sons of God, Jew and Gentile, like all the non-Jews, through faith. Not by keeping the works of the law, keeping kosher and clean laws and so forth. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You're God's people. So, point is, no racism or classism or factions or cliques in the church because of the gospel. No socioeconomic dividing lines, no hip square dividing lines, no socially sophisticated, socially awkward dividing lines, no us and them in the body of Christ. No first class and second class citizens in the kingdom of Christ. We're all one body in Christ, all justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, level ground, foot of the cross. So when Peter did this, he obviously, did, you know, if you just stopped him and said, hey, Peter, did you, do you still believe in justification by faith alone? Would he have said, no, actually, I've changed. Just last night. No, he, he's, he would have still said he believed that. But when he drew back from meeting with the Gentiles, he was out of step with the truth of the gospel. He denied by his actions what he professed with his mouth. And Paul is saying, this is a really big deal. We need gospel doctrine and gospel conduct. So you got to see how serious this is. Did you notice Paul's language here? Look at verse 11. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Really? The apostle Peter? Verse 13, he acted hypocritically. And others were led astray as well. Verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul is not standing idly by here. There's too much at stake. Um, Listen to what Ortland says here. When Peter denied Jesus back in the gospels, he was panicking for his physical self-preservation. Here in Antioch, he is denying Jesus again, this time panicking for his social self-preservation. Driven by that primitive fear, Peter falsified the gospel, not at the level of doctrine, but at the level of culture. So we can nullify the grace of God by our conduct, all the while continuing to confess orthodoxy. So look at verse 15, Galatians 2.15. And this is a, can be a little bit complicated at times, you know, trying to follow the, the, the flow of thought. We're just going to hit it briefly. 
um, kind of the flyover. Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile, look up here, sinners. Okay? That's how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They called them the sinners. Remember when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners? That's what they called them. Okay, obviously we're all sinners by nature and choice, but this is the way that they used this language then. So he's saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet, Peter, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Okay, what's going on here? So we're Jews, Peter, but when we embraced the truth of the gospel, that a person is justified by work, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we tore down our justification by works of the law building project. It wasn't going anywhere. We admitted that we were no better than anyone else, Gentile sinners included. We couldn't save ourselves by law keeping. In fact, the law led us to Christ, remember, Peter? Showing us that we couldn't be righteous by our own efforts. We needed righteousness as a gift of grace through Christ alone. So Peter, why would you turn back the clock and act as if works of the law are how you are in? Making the Gentile Christians in Antioch feel like they were second class at best or outside at worst. So to restart the righteousness by works of the law building project is to say that Christ's death was needless. You see? So if, here's the point. If we could make it out, like if you have a picture of you know, a burning building, if we could make it out by the fire escape of our own work, what a waste for Jesus to die in the flames. So Paul says, no, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. It's not my works. It's his love for me, what he's done for me. He gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Peter, if you try to rebuild justification by works, you'll tear down the church that Jesus died for. So, you guys tracking? Is that clear as far as the flow of thought? Now, here's what the conclusion Ortland draws from this section. Right doctrine plus wrong culture equals doctrinal denial. Right gospel doctrine plus anti-gospel culture equals a denial of the gospel. And then he says this, therefore we should not assume that our church culture is true to Christ in every way. We should assume that it isn't, and in ways we haven't yet noticed. We should pay careful attention to the intangibles of our churches, the feel, ethos, relationships, quality, and unspoken assumptions. There might not be... in they might not be in alignment with the gospel as closely as we desire. So just for what it's worth, there's no like elephant in the room that I'm just kind of like dancing around. I, I, you know, I don't want to say it. No, 
Every church needs to grow in this. And this is like on the line in every generation. A church could be healthy one year and ugly the next. And we all need to own the responsibility for the health and the beauty of the body of Christ. So that's why it's front and center, not because, you know, there's like some secret thing behind door number two. So Paul shows us, the Bible shows us, God is showing us that gospel culture is just as important as gospel doctrine. Creed and culture are both utterly vital, number three, and I'm just going to do this one basically with an extended quote from Ortland. And again, I'm not going to apologize because <laughs> it's just, he says it so well here. You ready? Gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine, and it must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. Paul fought for it because the doctrine of salvation by grace cannot be preserved with integrity if it is surrounded by a culture of salvation by self. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The gospel does more than renew us personally within. The doctrines of grace also create a culture of grace called a healthy church where the gospel is articulated at the level of doctrine and incarnated at the level of culture and vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. But getting a church there and keeping a church there is not easy. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the culture, the doctrine appears pointless and powerless. Self-justification creates an outlook of aloofness and superiority and negative scrutiny and gotcha. Though we hold the doctrine of grace justification, our deeper thoughts and feelings can slip into functional self-justification, and it shows. Trusting in ourselves that we are righteous and viewing others with contempt always go together. When we see the negative dynamics of dismissive contempt, there is a reason, and the reason is a gospel deficit in the heart, however sincere the gospel profession in the head. We look at our doctrinal statements and our mental beliefs, and they seem to line up, but a tip-off that the gospel does not have as deep a hold on us as we would wish is whenever we start looking for a scapegoat, someone to judge, someone to whom we can transfer our anxiety. Whenever we need someone else to be wrong, to preserve our okayness, we are in self-justification mode. We aren't really trusting in the perfect scapegoat God provided at the cross, and it creates a culture of ugliness. But justification by faith alone creates a culture of acceptance and warmth and beauty and safety. Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The more clearly that doctrine is taught and the more beautifully that culture is developed, the more powerfully a church will bear prophetic witness to Jesus as the mighty friend of sinners. He will be honored and people will come. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. So aligning creed and culture really matters. Just as justification by faith alone is intended to create a culture of grace, a beautiful culture, grace and truth, so also the alternatives inevitably create a kind of culture and it's ugly. So God intends for our creed and our culture to align so that we don't unsay with our lives what we say with our lips. So do you see this? Do you see this vision? Do you long for this? 
Like, are you on board here? Anybody, anybody? Okay. Now, is anybody convicted of hypocrisy? Hypocrisy to the gospel. I believe the gospel, but I've not been living in line with the gospel here and here and here. And we can beat ourselves up and become discouraged and maybe even paralyzed. Well, this passage is really encouraging. <laughs> it doesn't need, this doesn't need to paralyze you. We just need to own it and repent. Listen, Paul's confrontation of Peter was serious, wasn't it? But think about this. This was Peter, the apostle, who fell prey to this. And he had divine revelation, direct divine revelation on these issues. Do you know that? This is really actually encouraging. So follow me here, okay? Flip back to Acts chapter 10. You've got to see this. So Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius. He's a God-fearing Gentile. He's a centurion, military guy. And... You know, he prays, but he doesn't know the gospel yet. But God is hearing his prayers, and he wants to send Peter to share the gospel with him. But you know what? The church hasn't really broken out into Gentile territory yet. They haven't worked this stuff out yet. And so Peter is praying one day, and he gets hungry, and he wants something to eat, and he goes up while they're waiting, and he just falls into a trance. He's got a vision. So look down at verse 11. Acts 10, verse 11. He sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What? Peter said, by no means. He's, an, he's a good Jew. I've never eaten anything that's unclean or common. And the voice came to him again. This happened three times. What God has made clean, do not call common. So Peter you know, wakes up from this thing. He's trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And then knock, knock, knock at the door. These guys show up. Before he meets them, the Spirit says, hey, there's three guys that are looking for you. You need to go down and go with them without hesitation. Okay? So he goes with them, and they take him to Cornelius' house. Now look at verse 28. They basically said, okay, come and tell us what we need to hear. So verse 28, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That was what was normal as far as their clean laws were concerned. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Cornelius says, here, this is what's happened. And so Peter opens his mouth, verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, and he goes on, preaches the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls, and these people are saved. It's awesome. So the people with Peter, look at verse 45, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
whoa, can anyone withhold water from the, baptizing these people? Because they, they've received the gospel. Now look at the beginning of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, same cats back in Galatians 2, criticized him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter defended it. He didn't back down. And after he explained what happened, verse 18, they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Why do I bring all that up? Because Peter, an apostle, who had that clear of a word on how this ought to go, was prone to wander like we sung. And that same Peter got confronted, and then he got back in line with the truth of the gospel. So I guess if that happened to Peter, maybe that's encouraging for us who are prone to wander, and we might also not be in step with the gospel. It's amazing. I mean, think about how God dealt with Peter when he denied him the first time. When Jesus, you know, went, was uh, arrested and taken away and denies Jesus three times, it didn't disqualify him for ministry. You remember how Jesus reinstated him? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, just like the three denials. He even said ahead of time in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, you have, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I know you're going to deny me. And then you're going to repent. And then go strengthen your brothers. And then you know what? In Galatians 2, you're going to do it again. And, and I'm going to send Paul to get you back in line with the truth of the gospel. And then you know what? Keep going. How, how great of a Savior do we have? He knows we're prone to wander. Like, we need this. Like, yes, like a booster shot in the arm right now, but we, this kind of culture thing is, is something we're going to need to work on all the time. So I hope that's encouraging. Our hypocrisy, our failures, our proneness to wander doesn't need to paralyze us. It doesn't mean we're not the real thing. It doesn't mean we don't believe the gospel. But what do we do when we're confronted? And maybe this text is confronting you this morning like these things have been confronting me of late. Peter stood condemned. And at least what he was doing was condemnable. But he wasn't utterly condemned. We may feel convicted this morning by how our lives are not in step with the truth of the gospel, but we don't have to fret or even be discouraged by that. We can just thank the Lord that he showed it to us. <laughs> Seeing our hypocrisy is actually the beginning of how the beautiful gospel culture is cultivated. Because it leads, what, what does seeing our sin lead to? Humility and repentance. And we look to Jesus and we get more grace. God opposes the property, gives grace to the humble. So let's cultivate, last point, a beautiful gospel culture here. Okay, so I said this, on that, those two days away, it was shortly before the time I was, I was about to leave, and I'm reading this book, and it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. These things hit me so hard. I just... 
I mean, you see what that looks like? That was like that moment, you know. <laughs> this is, here's one of the things I wrote. This is way more important than I've ever given it credit for. I hope you see that. I hope that you will pray for this series that God would hit us and shape us by the power of the gospel the way that he wants to do. So what is it in your life, my life, your conduct that's not in line with the truth of the gospel? Where's your life out of step with the truth of the gospel? Where is it that our conduct as a church is not in line with the truth of the gospel? Where's their dissonance between our doctrine and our disposition or our creed and our culture. So we need to start with the I, okay? Like I said, I'm personally convicted. I definitely was convicted about dynamics in our family culture. So there's like a, my own life, my little, you know, the little community of my family, and then, obviously, I was convicted that I haven't taken these things seriously and I didn't realize how important they are in relation to our church family as well. So we all need to examine ourselves in terms of the I and then move to our responsibility in the we. It's corporate responsibility. So we need to own it individually, corporately. Own the responsibility to cultivate a gospel culture here at Bethel. So where our church is strong now and, and our church is strong in some ways, it's actually strong in this regard. Like, stories that I hear of the way people are received as visitors or the way people are served by meals and love and service, it's the embodiment of the gospel. Other expressions of love and care, embodied grace. Where our church is weak, it's weak in this regard. So evaluate whatever spheres you're in. Where is their dissonance? Your own heart, and then move out from there, your home. How about your community group? If you're involved and it's going well, is it going well for everyone in your group? That ought to be your concern. Protect the culture. Cultivate that culture. If it's not going well in your community group, how can you humbly help? If you're not involved in a community group, do you believe gospel, culture, community matters? Now, listen, for what it's worth, that's not like a cheap shot. I, if any of you have other reasons and ever want to come and just talk about why you're not involved in a community group, I would totally welcome that. I'm just, so any of the spheres you're involved in, community groups is obviously central for these dynamics as far as how we work this out. How about the worship team? It applies there. Gospel culture, shaping those team dynamics. Children's ministry, facility team, gospel culture. Do you see? This is like hugely important. Sunday school class, adults, Awana, gospel culture. Everything. So in this series, we're going to bring the community discussions back um, for at least most of the, the Sundays. And so because of that, if, if you don't know what that is, um, we did it, was it last summer, was the last time, um, where we end 15, 20 minutes early and have opportunity to have some dialogue on 
the message, but not just that. Also, there's opportunity to give testimony of how God is at work among us, how his word is at work in our lives and shaping us. So maybe in those times, you may want to share how you've been convicted of not living in step with the truth of the gospel, and you want to repent publicly and seek forgiveness. Maybe, maybe we're going to be able to give testimonies of how people have cultivated this gospel culture for you. You know what? When I first came here, or you know what? Last week, and, and we can stir each other up to love and good deeds by how we've been blessed because those gospel culture dynamics were present here. You can give testimony to how someone's love embodied this. So how else can you fully engage and and make the most of this series? For the good of the church, our community, the glory of Jesus? Well, you can read this book, (laughs) okay? The Gospel by Ray Ortland. Pretty easy to find. Google, Amazon, whatever, okay? Find somebody else who's reading it. Talk about it. Maybe people in your community group. And we need to note that if we're on board with this, if this is what we want, it is not going to be easy. There is an enemy of our souls, but I'll tell you, he's the enemy of anything, any beautiful gospel culture. (laughs) He loves to tear that to shreds. So we're going to have to fight the inclinations of our own hearts, our wider surrounding culture, and the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. But it is worth it, isn't it? (laughs) And the gospel is more powerful. Greater is he that's within us than he who's in the world. So what better place to begin this evaluation and cultivation of a gospel culture than right here at the table of our Lord? Isn't that great? Aren't you excited? So when we approach the table, are there things you need to repent of? Okay, individually, we're only going to be as strong as our members. The table is always an opportunity to examine our hearts and see where we need to repent. In fact, um, while the men who are going to serve come forward, I encourage you to flip to 1 Corinthians 11. So are there things we need to repent of individually or even corporately? Maybe that sounds weird. One of the messages at Together for the Gospel was about the Revelation 2 and 3 letters to the churches. And it was John MacArthur, and he started off and said, have you ever been a part of a church that repented? Like corporately. Well, that's exactly what Jesus calls those churches to do. Because oftentimes there are characteristic sins of churches that they need to repent of. So is there anything like that that we need to get right? What would Jesus write to us? What would he call us to repent of? This is a time for examination. So listen to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not examining his heart, not examining how he's related to the body of Christ and whether or not he's lived out a gospel culture, she's lived out a gospel culture with others, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
body of Christ, gospel culture, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Isn't that just like what Paul did with Peter? Confronted him so that he could get back in line. So if we're convicted right now, we need to examine ourselves, get back in line. So it's a great place to start. I love this quote by William Arnaud on, on, on the Proverbs. He says, The difference between an unconverted person and a converted person is not that one has sins and the other does not have sins. The difference is that one stands in solidarity with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other stands in solidarity with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So be encouraged. If you're convicted, Peter is with us, the apostle, and we can get back in line with the truth of the gospel this morning. So tie this table into the theme of this series. And another point here, just quickly. Augustine used to talk about the sacraments as visible words. That's what the Lord's table is. Visible, touchable, tasteable words. You ingest them and are nourished. They are tokens of the gospel. So we need to take God's grace to us through Christ into our very souls and be fed and changed and strengthened. We don't merely need creedal assent, though we do. We want to be clear on the gospel. But we need, we need it to go all the way in to the core. It's grace. We need to feed on the gospel and it will change and shape us into the beautiful, loving, life-giving community that God wants us to be. So, this table is for anyone who believes the gospel and has publicly through baptism said, by God's grace, I'm a Christian. I've been saved by his grace through faith in Christ my Savior. So Father, we thank you so much for the truth and the power of the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to drink it in and feed on it so that it shapes us powerfully into the kind of people and the kind of community that are living proof of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.